Thank you very much, President, for that generous introduction. This year, 2011, we commemorate the 400th anniversary of the completion of the authorised or King James Version of the Bible in English. There will be celebrations nationwide and also in the United States. And they're being coordinated by the King James Bible Trust, of which I'm a trustee. Prince Charles is our patron, and we are chaired and inspired by the Right Hon. Frank Field MP, noted anti-poverty campaigner and Anglican layman. Special church services, lectures, conferences and exhibitions in various great libraries, as the President mentioned in the Bodleian, also the University Library in Cambridge, in Manchester and elsewhere. The BBC is involved in two television programmes with Adam Nicholson and Melvin Bragg, who want to discuss the long-term impact of the translation. Three radio programmes have already been in process to cover the gradual emergence of the Bible in England, not just the KJV alone. KJV is the standard abbreviation. Together with Dr Peter McCulloch of Lincoln College, I was in the middle radio programme presented by Jim Nochty, the man who reads the news with a Scottish accent. The conference held at Hampton Court between King James and the delegation of Puritan clergy of the Church of England was the beginning of the process that led to the new Bible. So by way of preparation for our programme, we walked all round Hampton Court after closing time and without any tourists to get a sense of the place in 1604. Then it was a working royal palace, still functioning much as it had done under Henry VIII. That walk around was an unforgettable experience, not least because I'm sure that James met the godly delegation there because it is the most awing place in terms of royal majesty that you can imagine. It says a great deal for them that they weren't quite as daunted as James had obviously wished. (coughs) All in all, there's considerable public and media interest in Britain. The American Protestant churches are coming together to honour the occasion and there will be similar events across the Commonwealth. Why is the King James Version so important? It was a thoroughly revised translation of the Bible, the product of what was at the time cutting-edge scholarship in Greek, Hebrew and Latin. The project was suggested originally at a General Assembly of the the Scottish Kirk in 1601 at a meeting in Burnt Island in Fife. Our information comes from John Spottiswood, the later 17th century historian of the Church of Scotland, and I think it's worth reading you the whole of the passage. A proposition was made for a new translation of the Bible and the correcting of the Psalms in metre. His Majesty did urge it earnestly and with many reasons did persuade the undertaking of the work, showing the necessity and the profit of it and what a glory the performing thereof should bring to this church. Speaking of the necessity, he did mention sundry mistakes in the common translation and made it seem that he was no less conversant in the scriptures than they whose profession it was. When he came to speak of the Psalms, the king did recite whole verses of the same, showing both the faults of the metre and the discrepance from the text. It was a joy of all those that were present to hear it, and bred not a little admiration in the whole assembly, which, of course, was exactly what James was hoping that it would do. The royal performance was intended to elicit admiration for James in his role within the Scottish Kirk, 
where, of course, unlike Elizabeth in the English church, he had no official position as supreme governor. Anything that James could do to boost his role in the Scottish church would be a a response to those who argued that, in ecclesiastical terms, the king was a mere layman, no more, no less. So James showed off his classical and biblical learning to the often critical and unruly clergy of the Scottish Presbyterian Church. The motion was approved and the translation project was recommended. To such of the brethren as were most skilled in the languages and revising of the Psalms, but nothing was done in the one or the other. (coughs) Spottiswood paints a shrewd word picture of King James, very hands-on in the debate, but unable or unwilling to go to the trouble of translating the idea of a translation into reality. And, of course, that text, agreed on at Burnt Island, would have emerged in Lowland Scots, not English. So although many historians have emphasised Burnt Island as the origins of the KGV, I think it's a bit more complicated than that. There is no straight lineal descent. The Scottish General Assembly of 1601 achieved nothing except perhaps planting the idea in James' mind. But by 1604 at Hampton Court, powerful additional factors were at work. Englishmen were already, quite independently, thinking along the same lines about a new translation. As James rode down from Edinburgh in 1603, after the death of Elizabeth, he was presented with the millenary petition, centering on issues such as allegedly popish ceremonies and vestments, the status of married clergy, and it urged the requirement that the clergy should be well-educated. Signed by over a thousand clergy of the Church of England, or so it was claimed, It wanted to emphasise the need for the grounding of all doctrine in scripture rather than on the authority of the clergy or the tradition of the church. James decided to convene a conference. At Hampton Court in January 1604, these godly clergy of the English church pressed the king to address these problems that they had brought to his attention and to implement various reforms. They wanted in general to move the church in a more explicitly Protestant, less ceremonial dimension. The king did not concede those changes, which were also opposed by many churchmen, including Richard Bancroft, the forceful Bishop of London. Finally, the Puritan delegation also put forward a request for a new translation of the Bible. But as the Renaissance scholar Professor Gordon Campbell has pointed out, there is a real curiosity in the account by William Barlow which provides our primary source for the conference. In that account, Dr John Reynolds, president of this college, leader of the godly, proposed that there might be a new translation of the Bible because those that were allowed in the reigns of Henry VIII and Edward VI were corrupt and not answerable to the truth of the original. A reference to the great Bible of Henry VIII's reign, the Bible of 1539. And it was from that Bible that Reynolds drew his three examples of erroneous translation. Yet the Bible officially in use in 1604, as we shall see, was the revision of the Great Bible produced in 1568, further revised in 1572, and known as the Bishop's Bible. The bishops themselves were perfectly happy with this Bible, the Puritans less so. What Barlow's account does not tell us is that both the bishops and the king strongly objected to another translation, the Geneva Bible of 1557 to 1560 which was enormously popular in England and widely used by the godly. 
James disliked it. That of Geneva is the worst, he told the delegation. He disliked it because it contained marginal notes very critical of the authority of monarchs and sometimes went so far as to describe them flatly as tyrants. If James thought back to Burnt Island, he might well have concluded that here in 1604 in England, with its established church, where he had an established position within it, here he could risk offering a concession to the Puritan faction. He would agree to a new translation, as the Puritans had requested. But at the same time, he might outflank the Geneva version which he so much disliked with its anti-clerical stance. Then as now, any successful negotiation has to give something to both sides, and that's what happened here. The Puritans got something, but James had his own agenda, where he also succeeded. And there was a further advantage for James. Obviously, this new translation would be a laborious endeavour, taking years. By agreeing to it, James would effectively kick this particular godly demand into the long grass, diffusing the tensions of 16.4. James was very pleased with his own handiwork. (coughs) He wrote bullishly to the crypto-Catholic Lord Henry Howard, later of Earl of Northampton, we have kept such a revel with the Puritans here, as was never heard the like. They fled me so from argument to argument, without ever answering me directly. As I was forced at last to say that if any of them had been in a college disputing with their scholars, if any of their disciples had answered them in that sort, so should the rod have plied upon the poor boy's buttocks. James is always very blunt about these matters. But James had every reason to vaunt his victory in the short term. He did not tell Northampton what he had conceded for the longer term, the translation of a new Bible. How had this urge in 16.4 for a new Bible translation come about? Bible translation in England already had a long history. The first translations in the vernacular had emerged some 600 years earlier with Anglo-Saxon versions of the Gospels and the Psalms. Around 1300, there were translations of Genesis, Exodus and the Psalms into Middle English, which was just emerging in the 13th century. In the 14th century, the Lollard Reform Movement, led by John Wycliffe, saw more Bible translation. Two versions emerged, though neither was the work of Wycliffe himself. The names that have come down to us are Nicholas of Hereford and John Purvey, but others were involved. Purvey noted cryptically in his prologue that he had worked with divers fellows and helpers, whose names, obviously, he was sheltering. Both texts closely follow the wording of the Latin Vulgate, and possibly they were more of a crib for readers with poor Latin than a standalone translation. The chronicler Henry Knighton, writing in the, 50, in the 1390s, complained that Wycliffe's translation had made the Bible common and open to the laity and even to those women who were able to read. This fear of women did not die away. John Milton, no less, opined, opined that when God speaks in his word, He speaks first to his English men. The Wycliffeite movement was condemned in 1407 when the Council of Oxford forbade any fresh translations of the whole or part of the Bible or the use of any translation made in the time of Wycliffe. Nevertheless, numerous manuscript versions of the Wycliffeite text were copied and circulated right into the early 16th century. So clearly we can see that there was a real hunger for the Bible Well before the Reformation, the Bible in English was wanted. It was desired by a great many people. 
Then came printing, the transformative technology of the early modern world. The Latin Vulgate, the translation largely made by St. Jerome, was one of the earliest printed books known as the Gutenberg Bible. It was followed by a wave of learned editions of the Greek and Latin texts, including Erasmus's magisterial edition of the Greek New Testament. These inspired the brilliant young scholar William Tyndale. He fell under suspicion and left for Germany. He probably met Martin Luther at Wittenberg in 1524, only two years after Luther's own German New Testament had appeared. Tyndale's own English New Testament was initially printed at Cologne, but the printing house was raided and most copies burnt. We only have one fragment, a part of Matthew's Gospel, which is now in the British Library. Tyndale moved to Worms, where his translation was printed in 1526, but the book was banned in England, pestiferous and most pernicious poison. Bishop Cuthbert Tunstall visited Antwerp and bought up the printer's stock there, which he burned. So we have only two copies of that edition. Subsequent editions were expanded to include the Pentateuch, the first part of the Old Testament, the Book of Jonah and Tyndale, also left Joshua and two chronicles in manuscript. But tragically, he was burned as a heretic in Holland in 1536, the same year that Anne Boleyn, another devotee of the new Bible learning, was executed on Tower Green. Anne possessed her own copy of Tyndale's New Testament. It is specially bound for her in vellum, with her name in red letters on the foredge, Anna Reina Anglia. Here was Henry Knighton's fear come true, the Bible open to women who could read. Much of Tyndale's translation of the New Testament passed almost unchanged into the 1611 authorised version, a remarkable achievement properly honoured by later translators. But by now, the idea of an English Bible was becoming mainstream. In 1534, the Convocation of Canterbury petitioned Henry VIII for a new translation. The king did not respond. But Miles Coverdale, a Cambridge scholar monk, completed and revised the Old Testament work left unfinished by Tyndale. And he published in 1535 a complete Bible of the Old and New Testaments and the Apocrypha. Tyndale must, Coverdale must have worked immensely hard to produce it with such speed, even allowing for the fact that he was utilising what Tyndale had done. And tactfully, Coverdale dedicated his Bible to Henry VIII. Coverdale knew German, so he could use Luther's Bible translations and convert them into English. He also used the work of the Swiss reformer Heinrich Zwingli. The rest he translated into English from the Latin Vulgate. Coverdale did not know enough Hebrew to tackle the Old Testament afresh, but his translation of the German Psalms became an English liturgical classic. Archbishop Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer, published in 1549 and, revised by, and re restored and revised by Elizabeth in 1559, uses the Coverdale Psalms within the services of Matins and Evensong. Happily, Coverdale survived to see his work acknowledged. Returning from exile under Mary Tudor, he assisted at the consecration of Archbishop Matthew Parker in December 1559 and died in 1568. But devotees of the traditional Anglican prayer book continue to use his psalms. In 1537, Henry VIII softened his stance on Bible translations, and a revised version 
including the texts of both Tyndale and Coverdale, emerged. This was known as Matthew's Bible, but Matthew was the pseudonym of the radical Protestant John Rogers. The text was probably printed in Antwerp. Rogers himself was to become the first Protestant burnt under Mary Tudor, so he paid a high price for his work. Then a further revision followed by the Oxford scholar Richard Taverner, who produced an improved version of Matthew's Bible with the Greek text of the New Testament. Taverner was an excellent Greek scholar, but he knew no Hebrew, so he loses the Latin Vulgate as the basis for his Old Testament. I think the core point that one wants to make here, looking at these detailed translations, was that translators did what they could to move the project forward, where they didn't have the full range of linguistic skills necessary for the whole range of ancient texts, they improvised, using what was already available. The process, in other words, was entirely pragmatic. Then came the Great Bible of 1539, printed under the patronage of Henry VIII's great minister, Thomas Cromwell. It was a response to the royal injunctions of 1538, which ordered a lectern-size English Bible to be set up in all churches. So great Bible referred initially just to the very large size. Its position was reinforced by Cranmer when he reissued it in 1540 with a preface he had written, and he ordered its use in all English places of worship. The Great Bible has a superb title page which depicts God bending down to bless Henry VIII, who in turn is handing out copies of his Bible to Thomas Cranmer and Thomas Cromwell. Here we have the royal supremacy at work. There is no image of the Pope, and Cromwell, of course, was not a cleric, but a layman. The original woodcut, almost certainly, was by Hans Holbein. All these 1530s editions rely heavily on the work of Tyndale and Coverdale. Later versions also incorporated Taverner's edition. Increasingly, printing was able to run off copies that could satisfy the growing demand. These Bibles could also be produced in small format, quarto or octavo, no need for lectern size. They were fairly cheap, and Bibles sold well. So independent scholars and publishers saw a commercial opportunity, not just a religious one. I think this is an important point, not sufficiently assimilated. There was a commercial incentive behind the proliferation of Bible printing. There's almost a chicken and egg process here with Bible printing encouraging Protestantism and Protestantism encouraging individuals to own their own Bible. So printers at least had the possibility of making profits from Bible printing, although not all did so, it's true. But right until the 19th century, in many British households, the only book to be found was a Bible. However, it was still the case that commissioning a fresh translation of the whole text of the Bible with a uniform prose style was hardly possible without much greater patronage to support scholars for the length of time necessary. What you needed was the equivalent in modern terms of a massive Leverhulme grant to get this process going. But lacking that, the best that printers could do was to use and amalgamate the translations already done. Then came the terrible backlash of 1540, with the downfall of Thomas Cromwell after his disastrous choice of Anne of Cleves for Henry's fourth wife. The rush of translations came to a halt, The conservative faction at court was back in the ascendant, led by Bishop Stephen Gardner. Back to the Latin Vulgate for official use, and in 1546, 
the use of Tyndale's and Coverdale's versions of the New Testament was forbidden. The whole momentum behind the English Bible came juddering to a stop. <coughs> but only for a year. Since Henry VIII's death in 1547 led to the accession of Edward VI and ushered in the Protestant regimes of Protector Somerset and then the Duke of Northumberland. English Bibles could once more be printed, circulated and used in worship. But in 1553, the boy King Edward died and his half-sister Mary succeeded. From her base in Norfolk, she overthrew Northumberland and claimed the crown. Once again, the Latin Mass was restored and with it, the Latin Vulgate Bible. However, by now, printing had made it virtually impossible for any government to control what books people had already bought or what they could read discreetly at home. As any technology moves forward, be it printing or television or now the internet, the level of control that any government can exercise over information that it would prefer that you didn't know, that control is steadily weakening. Just look at WikiLeaks. It's absolutely amazing. At Geneva, in exile from Mary Tudor's England, the Oxford classicist and Calvinist published in 1557 a revised version of the New Testament for the use of his fellow English Protestants there. He was assisted by the other exiles, a very talented and exceptionally able group, including the great Hebraist Anthony Gilby. Whittingham also took a leading part in the production of the Old Testament to make a full Bible. He remained behind to supervise its completion after 1558, when everybody else rushed back to England on Mary Tudor's death. In 1560, Whittingham completed the full text dedicated to Elizabeth. It was known in polite circles as the Geneva Bible, but more popularly as the Breaches Bible, from its unfortunate rendering of Genesis, where Adam and Eve, realising that they were naked, sewed themselves breeches. The Geneva Bible was almost entirely translated from the original Hebrew and Greek texts, not the later Latin editions. So the, the exiles produced a Bible of very high uh, quality uh, scholarship. And Geneva was to be by far the most successful English Bible for at least 80 years, printed in one volume in 1576, going through some 140 editions. Its last printing was in 1644. Its preface refers to the godly and learned men who had been present at its renaissance in Geneva. Whittingham's exile had made him familiar with the reformers Calvin and Beza, so it's possible to see their influence on the translation, as, that, as, that, as well as that of other French translators like Olivetan and Lefebvre d'Etaples. But the most important innovation of the translators of the Geneva Bible was its division of the text into numbered verses. This made it much easier for clergy and readers to use and to quote. The Geneva Bible remained immensely influential under Elizabeth, and many passages went into the authorised version. At the same time, after 1558, the Great Bible of 1539, the Bible of Cromwell and Cranmer, returned to popularity. Archbishop Matthew Parker and his colleagues undertook a revision, which became the Bishop's Bible, first published in 1568. Based on the Great Bible, it, it had a more forward-looking re recent Greek and Hebrew scholarship. Giles Lawrence, Regis Professor of Greek at Oxford, 
who worked on the New Testament revision for the, edition of the, uh, the second edition of the Bishop's Bible in 1572. Lawrence left us a wonderful set of notes. Would that we had more notes from translators. In these notes, he explains 29 readings of the Greek and his personal decisions on each translation. Giles Lawrence was close to Mildred Cecil, Lady Burley, and in the 1560s, they read Greek together for pleasure. Yes, really. Giles Lawrence thought Mildred was as good as, she, as he was, if not better. Lord Burley was a great supporter of the Bishop's Bible, and the Cecil coat of arms appears at various points in the work. At one point, incongruously, it adorns a map of Canaan. <laughs> a picture of Lord Burley, volume of Psalms in hand, appears before the Book of Psalms, next to a preface of St Basil. Incidentally, St Basil was Mildred Cecil's favourite Greek author and she'd already translated him in the reign of Edward VI. The initials of Dean Gabriel Goodman of Westminster, another Cecil client and a friend of Mildred, appear at the end of 1 Corinthians as its reviser. Mildred also owned the magnificent eight-volume Bible printed by Christopher Plantin at Antwerp between 1568 and 1573. It was dedicated to Philip II of Spain, and it contained the biblical texts in Hebrew, Greek, Latin, and Chaldean, that is Aramaic and Syriac. This Plantin edition was a very rare item in English libraries, let alone private collections. And in 1581, Mildred gave her Plantin Bible to St. John's Cambridge, where it still survives. She wrote a letter in Greek to go with it. Nothing leads forward those who are enthusiastic about theology more than the translations of many languages through which God has consented to reveal the saviour of the world. All this is circumstantial evidence, but everything seems to me to point to Mildred Cecil as one of those enthusiasts for Bible translation to whom she referred in her letter. And the fact that she wrote that letter to St John's in Greek, not English, to accompany her gift is also a very broad hint. Surely Mildred Cecil, one of the very best Greek scholars of her generation, must have participated, if only informally, with her friends Giles Lawrence and Gabriel Goodman in at least some of the work that went into translating the Bishop's Bible. So if I am right, Mildred is our first woman translator. Convocation ordered the English clergy to obtain a copy of the Bishop's Bible for their churches, and as we've seen, it was revised again in 1572. These events show the impact of the Northern Rising between 1569 and 1571, where the religiously conservative rebels destroyed both English Bibles and English prayer books, which had replaced the Mass, of course, after Mary Tudor's death. This conservative uprising in the North reminded the Privy Council that Northern England was still far from Protestant and still far from loyal to Elizabeth. Hence the orders to church wardens to buy Bibles and the revision in 1572 of the Bishop's Bible. That revision followed the Geneva Bible in dividing the text into verses for easy reference, a practical device that had already proved popular with both readers and preachers. But it was also mildly censored, with phrases savouring of what was regarded as lightness or obscenity in the preface discreetly tidied up. No marginal notes were allowed in case they proved contentious. Anything to lessen religious controversy 
in the aftermath of the Northern Rising. However, the frontispiece was very forthright. The Queen and her ministers are shown presiding over a bishop-dominated church. There will be no radical tampering with the 1559 settlement of religion, no concessions to the Northern rebels. However, a small but tenacious Roman Catholic community still survived in mid-Elizabethan England. In Roman canon law, it was necessary for laymen to receive special permission in order to read the Bible in vernacular. Intent on creating an acceptable version that might compete with the Bishop's Bible, the members of the English Catholic College in exile at Reims translated the New Testament, largely at the instigation of William Allen, later made a cardinal. Their translation of the New Testament was issued in 1582, and the Old Testament in English followed in 1609, published at Douay, another Catholic seminary. Both testaments were translated from the Vulgate, as the Counter-Reformation Council of Trent had insisted that the Vulgate must retain its primacy. But for the New Testament, the original Greek was also consulted. In many places, the English of this Catholic Bible is splendidly Elizabethan, direct and vivid. So the translators of the King James Bible had no hesitation in consulting the Catholic New Testament of 1582. All this background is obviously complex, and it's clear that the emergence of the KJV was far from simple. (coughs) The number of possible Bibles in circulation at the end of Elizabeth's reign, together with increased scholarly knowledge of the Greek and Hebrew text, lay behind the request in 1604 for the new translation. In virtually all other ways, James at the Hampton Court Conference rebuffed the godly. Dr John Reynolds was their principal mouth and speaker. He listed many suggestions for reform. And it was only right at the end of his list that Reynolds asked for one only translation of the Bible to be authentical and read in the church. Another version of his speech has the rather more courtly, may your majesty be pleased that the Bible be new translated. Richard Bancroft, the authoritarian Bishop of London, argued that it would be pointless to follow what he called every man's humour in translation. However, despite James' strenuous involvement in the debates, of which he later boasted to Northampton, James was taken with the idea of a new translation. This seems particularly because of his strong objections to the Geneva Bible, still very popular among Calvinists. The king thought it offensive in its explicit condemnations of royal rule and its frequent use of the word tyrant, as I've mentioned. Some 44 times tyrant is mentioned. Significantly, the word tyrant is not found at all in the KJV. (laughs) James made his views clear. His Highness wishes that some especial pains should be taken in that behalf for one uniform translation, and this to be done by the best learned of both universities. From them to be reviewed by the bishops and chief learned of the church, from them to be presented to the Privy Council, and lastly to be ratified by his royal authority, to be read in the whole church and no other. Archbishop Whitgift died in February 1605, and James elevated Bancroft from London to Canterbury. Delighted with his new post, Bancroft was keen to follow the king's wishes, and in July 1605 he wrote to a group of Cambridge scholars, I am persuaded his royal mind rejoiceth more with good hope 
which he hath for the happy success of that work, the new Bible, than of his peace concluded with Spain. Strong words, for James was very proud of his peace in 1604, bringing to an end the long Armada War that had dogged Elizabeth's later years. Bancroft, despite his reservations, also organised the financing of the KGV. The bishops were required by him to find livings for the translators, by now often capitalised. And these livings had to be more than £20 a year, a decent income. James was not going to pay for it from Crown funds, obviously. The translation committee was to be divided into six companies of eight members, six directors supervising them, 54 men in all, but we only know the names of 50. We don't know if we've lost four names or whether those places were never filled. Bancroft's vigorous practical skills of organisation were invaluable. Without them, the KJV would not have happened. And they point to the difference between Burnt Island and Hampton Court. Nothing was done after Burnt Island, but after Hampton Court, Bancroft took control of the practicalities. However, he did not entirely get his own way. His letter of instruction insists that the base text must be the Bishop's Bible. To be, he instructed, as little altered as the truth of the original will permit. But that instruction was discreetly ignored. Modern studies indicate that perhaps as little as a quarter, maybe as low as 10%, depending on how you count, but very little of the KJV version can be directly traced to the Bishop's Bible. Excuse me. James and Bancroft appointed divines, including godly Puritans like John Reynolds, but also high churchmen like John Overall and Lancelot Andrews, and one layman, the pioneering manuscript collector, mathematician, astronomer, and translator of St John Chrysostom, Sir Henry Saville. The aim was for a definitive revision. Careful marginal notes were allowed, but only on matters of text and translation. Theology was not to intrude. The scale of the operation, 54 or 50 divines in six groups, two each working in Oxford, Cambridge and Westminster, the scale of that endeavour was truly remarkable for Western Europe as a whole, not just England in particular. Each man was to produce an individual translation, which was then to be discussed by his group, and a text to be agreed. That text then circulated to the other five groups, seriously and judiciously, as Bancroft instructed until a final version emerged. If the translators disagreed about, disagreed about any passage, or if they found something unduly obscure, they were free to ask any learned man of their choice for help. But there was also an insistence on uniformity. Texts quoted in the New Testament were reproduced in exactly the same words as they had been translated in the Old Testament. Although it was already obvious to Bible scholars in the early 17th century that in fact what appear as quotations in the New Testament were often inexact. They're paraphrases of the Old Testament rather than quotations per se. The diary still survives of Samuel Ward, one of the translators on the Cambridge panel allocated the Apocrypha. It has been described as an agonised conversation between the diarist and his conscience, and there's no doubt that Ward really was a strict Puritan. But years later, in 1618, Samuel Ward was one of the delegates sent by King James to the Synod of Dort. 
And for the Dutch, he wrote a Latin account of his recollections of what had happened between 1604 and 1611. It's clear from Ward's account that the very laborious methods of collaboration between all the translation groups were in practice somewhat simplified and speeded up. They presumably started off doing that elaborate process of multiple translation, and then as they grew more familiar with one another, more familiar with the text, things got faster. However, apart from Ward's retrospective account, relatively little is known of the years between 1604 and 1611. Once the process was set in motion, once Bancroft had disseminated the rules and the translators were chosen, the project drops from sight and only scraps remain. In November 1604, Lancelot Andrews, then Dean of Westminster, sent a note to the Secretary of the Society of Antiquaries that he could not attend the weekly meeting as the afternoon is our translation time. The Society of Antiquaries, of which I have the honour to be a member, still meets on Thursday afternoons. <laughs> there is also an extraordinary vellum-bound book of 125 pages in Lambeth Palace Library, entitled An English Translation of the Epistle of Paul the Apostle. Each page is ruled in red ink in double columns with a margin to left and right. It originated within the Second Westminster Company under William Barlow, and it's clearly gone through several hands for corrections, indicating the scrupulosity of the translators. Another remarkable document proves that such manuscript books were called in when they were needed for final editing. A letter survives from William Eyre, follower, fellow of Emmanuel Cambridge, to James Usher, later a famous Irish archbishop and collector of early manuscripts, including, above all, the Book of Kells. We owe the survival of the Book of Kells to Usher. Eyre asked for the return of his own manuscript book because there was an order taken from the King's Majesty by the Archbishop of Canterbury that the translation of the Bible shall be finished and printed as soon as may be. Dated 5th of December 1608, the note suggests that James himself was chivying Bancroft for greater speed on his pet project. Lastly, the Bodleian Library owns a copy of the Bishop's Bible printed in 1602, the base text on which Bancroft's rule had insisted. Marked on this copy are the first suggestions of an individual translator, followed by the comments and corrections of his fellow translators. That group met in Merton for their first meeting on the 13th of February, 1605, and they included George Abbott, the future Archbishop of Canterbury. They used the rooms of the cosmopolitan Sir Henry Saville in Merton. So, in the Bodleian copy of the Bishop's Bible, we have a direct link with one of the Oxford translation teams. The maddening thing about this 1602 Bishop's Bible is that it was later rebound and the binding has encroached on the pages, so we cannot see the full range of uh, the translation's emendations. Professor Gordon Campbell is lobbying vigorously to have it disbound so he can see these annotations. He would be delighted if you would write to Bodley's librarian, <laughs> if you feel as strongly as he does. At some point early in 1610, the only remaining task was to pull together the work of the teams into one reasonably homogeneous whole. That work was done over nine months at Stationers Hall, the nerve centre of the London book trade. The lawyer, John Selden, has given us an unforgettable picture of this last final meeting of the translators. 
Then they met together, and one read the translation, the rest holding in their hands some Bible of the learned tongues, or French, Spanish, Italian. The French Bible was Olivetan's translation. The Italian was the Diodati Bible, which is still used in Protestant, in Protestant congregations in Italy. And the Spanish version was the Reina Valera Bible, which I understand is also still used by the very small Protestant groups in Spain, but also all these by learned commentators on the text. So, the rest holding in their hands some Bible of the learned tongues, or French, Spanish, Italian. If they found any fault, they spoke. If not, he read on. And it took months, of course. Then the whole text was reviewed by Thomas Bilson, Bishop of Winchester, and Miles Smith, Bishop of Gloucester. Finally, Archbishop Bancroft read it and made 14 further revisions. Maddeningly, we don't know what they were. But by early 1611, the text was ready for the printer. Bishop Miles Smith wrote the long and beautiful preface. He hoped that the translation would bring to readers the light of understanding, stableness of persuasion, repentance from dead works, newness of life, holiness, peace, joy. The KJV is a masterpiece of English prose. Moreover, simply by being the work of a team which cross-checked their draft versions before arriving at the final wording, it is homogeneous from Genesis to Revelation. What had always been regarded by Protestants as God's word was now speaking in one divine voice. But it wasn't legislated into use. It carried an aura of royal authority since the king had set up the project, but there was merely a statement on the title page appointed to be read in churches. Regarded simply as a revision, it wasn't even entered into the stationer's register. The book was in black letter, an old-fashioned decision by the printer, and it had numerous misprints. The Geneva Bible was still widely used, and it may be that James' reluctance to enforce the new authorised version was in part because of the realisation that parishes across the land would have to lay out money for this new translation, whereas if he just authorised it instead of instructing them to use it, they could gradually replace their old Geneva Bibles with the new Bible, and that would be much less financial trouble and probably much less complaint. But regardless of what might have been the reason, James did not legislate it into use. The Geneva Bible remained popular until 1644, its last printing, and it wasn't until after the Restoration that the KJV became simply the Bible. It remained the only Bible used in British churches until the revised version of 1881-85, which gained a certain following. The KJV had a second long life in the American colonies. Lincoln's Gettysburg Address is drenched in the language of the KJV. The Bible read today by multi-millions of Chinese Christians. Apparently, we know of at least, we have good reason to believe that at least 50 million Chinese are practicing Christian. I know that's a drop in the population of China, but it's nearly the population of this country. The Chinese Bible is based directly upon the King James Version. However, the printed versions we are familiar with today were tidied up by the printer Benjamin Blaney in 1769. Nevertheless, the prose itself remains overwhelmingly that of 1611. So,
So, in 2011, we celebrate a truly extraordinary achievement. Religious, but also literary, cultural, international, and wholly remarkable. The greatest publication of Tudor Stuart language and scholarship, and, by, and still by far the most widely used book in the world, is the translation, completed in 1611, of the King James Bible. And I end with what to me is one of the most beautiful sentences in the English language. Bishop Miles Smith concluded thus in his preface. Translation it is that openeth the window to let in the light. Thank you.